our study in Mark, but I want to just say a couple of things real quickly here. If you're not signed up through the church uh, email portal, if you have not submitted your name and get, gotten uh, on that list, please do so, or at some point, maybe you've unsubscribed, or if you, maybe you think, you know, um, I don't see anything, I should be on there, I don't see it, check your junk folder, because sometimes the mail services we use go straight to your junk folder. But that's primarily the way we're communicating during this time. Things are changing really quickly, and so the best way to push that forward is through the, uh, the, the email. And then also, for those who are watching online today, I want to just let you know that we are limiting the service to one hour today. Uh, we understand that being at home, there's lots of distractions around, and it's easy to multitask. And so uh, if you can give us about 30 more minutes or so, um, I promise you that we'll do our part to keep it uh, briefer than normal, uh, shorter than normal, and if you can kind of limit distractions there as you join with us. And so we're in Mark chapter uh, 14 again, Mark chapter 14, and uh, I, as we jump into this passage, I just want to remind us, um, while I know that there's varying degrees of responses to what's going on around us, there is a lot of people who are concerned, there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of anxiety, and instead of worry, God wants us to worship. And while the corporate gathering, the corporate setting may not be ideal at this point for worship together, we can still worship God in many other ways. And one way that we primarily can worship God is by believing God is who he says he is and trusting what he says in his word. So we understand that God is who he says he is, and we trust his word. That's an act of worship. And so we trust God, and that's why we are going through Scripture. That's why we go through the book of Mark for many, many weeks, because we value Scripture highly. We, we trust Scripture. It's inspired by God. And we can walk through and see the life of Jesus very slowly, and then we can also take in all the things that are timeless truths that can apply for us today. So we're not only increasing our knowledge, but we're increasing our passion, our commitment to Jesus Christ and our desire to live for God's glory. So Mark chapter 14, we'll be in verses 12 through 25. And so if you've turned there, let me pray, and then we'll look at this passage of Scripture. Father God, I pray today as we look at your words, your truth, God, I pray for those at home as they uh, have maybe a lot of things going on behind them and the scenes around them. God, I pray that the best they can, they'll, they'll focus in and really follow along in your word. And God, we know that uh, we have to know your word in order to obey your word. And faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. And I pray that you allow us to tune into your truths today, God, and we'll recalibrate our lives uh, so that we can live more for you, God, and, and open the, have the Holy Spirit open our hearts, God, to, to the truth of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're at verse 12, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So we're here tracking with Jesus, and this last week of Jesus' life, it, there's a little bit of um, confusion, a little bit of disagreement on exactly the order of things that transpired, what exact days these things happened. Did Jesus die on a Thursday? Did he die on a Friday? We won't get into that today. That's being debated for centuries and centuries, and we're not going to solve it and make everybody happy. But some things that we do know from this passage is the fact that Jesus, as being an observant Jewish person, 
he did celebrate all the feasts that were laid out in the Old Testament. There were seven feasts appointed by God to honor him and uphold his name. And what's great about these on the backside of Jesus, and even we see it today as Jesus does something really amazing, we see that all of these feasts actually foreshadowed, pointed to, symbolized the life, resurrection, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this Feast of Unleavened Bread, this feast that also was referred to, it's all the same, two different feasts, but all the one eight days was considered either Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this entire week was referred to it as that way. And this was to commemorate the Passover. Uh, what was the Passover? The original Passover when it was the, the children of Israel were in Egypt. They were in bondage. And during that time that Moses went and uh, demanded of Pharaoh, let God's people go, and many of you know the story that Pharaoh refused and refused, even though God sent multiple plagues to them. And finally, um, God brought the ultimate judgment. His wrath came down in the form of the fact that the firstborn son of every family would be killed unless they followed God's commands to put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost of their home. And when the death angel passed over their home, he would spare them the wrath and judgment of God, therefore the name Passover. But Passover also looked forward to when God would finally grant his people freedom, the exodus which was to come. So not only was Passover a looking back on what God did, it also looked forward to the exodus which would happen when God would redeem his people and deliver his people. And according to the Old Testament, it was required that the Passover to be eaten in Jerusalem because it was only there that the lamb, which would have been the centerpiece of this meal, could be killed and sacrificed and killed and, and, and then given to them for the meal. And so because of Jesus' popularity and also the fact that, remember at this point, Jesus had a pretty large target on his back. People were actively seeking to kill him. The religious establishment was looking for ways to entrap him and put him to death, get him out of the picture. And so we see today that there's a certain level of secrecy in their preparations. Look at verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples, and Luke tells us who those disciples are, even though Mark does not. They were Peter and John. And he sent two of them and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. All right, so Jesus says, go in. You were to see this guy. Why would this stand out? Because a man in that culture would not be carrying a jar of water. It would typically be a woman carrying the, the, the jug. And so easily spotted by Peter and John. And Jesus says, when you see this guy, when you identify him, verse, uh, the end of verse 13, verse 14, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat? the Passover with my disciples. And then he will respond, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and that they prepared the Passover. So during this time period, you remember we talked about this, that Jerusalem would have just been packed with people. I mean, there would be people coming in to celebrate and during this time of Passover, many people would have been looking for a, a, a place to accommodate their large family gatherings, people who were there in town together to celebrate the Passover. Now, either Jesus had arranged for this, uh, these events with this man ahead of time, or this was something supernaturally he arranged. Either way, Peter and John 
had the, the, the plan of action Jesus gave them to go and secure this room. And not only would they have to go and secure the room, they would also had to um, purchase the lamb, had the lamb slaughtered. They would also gather up the other things that were necessary, such as the unleavened bread and the wine for this Passover meal. So they went to the city. They began to prepare these things, get these things ready, and get this room secured and ready to go for the Passover. And then verse 17 when it was evening, so later that evening, you remember Jewish days are determined the morning and the evening, God said when he did the creation of the world, were the first days. So evening would have been the first day of the next day, would be Friday when they would have celebrated more than likely, which way they would have celebrated the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating. And let's pause there for a second, because this is very significant what's going to happen next. This was Jesus' last meal. This was his Passover meal with his disciples. And he takes this Passover meal, something that had been honored for centuries after century, and he takes this and he turns this into a fulfillment of what he is about to do on the cross. So he has many times already prophesied and told, foretold the fact that he was going to the cross, he was going to be crucified, and then after, on the third day he would be risen again from the dead, but he takes this Passover celebration and he transforms it into what we refer to as the Lord's Supper or communion today, which commemorates his death on the cross. So once again, he predicts his suffering and death, and then each of the Gospels give us a varying degrees of details, exactly what took place, uh, different things that different authors, the different gospel writers wanted to be sure that we got as far as remembering these things. And each one tells us a little bit of different thing that we have all these truths that we can combine together and really see the full picture. Really awesome the fact that Luke notes something that Mark doesn't note, which is hard to believe, but it's par for the course for the disciples as we've seen so far, is the fact that he says a dispute arose among the disciples. Why did a dispute um, uh, arise? You can probably guess if you've been with us, who's the greatest again, all right? All right. They're, they're still arguing about which one is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it, it's bold, it's, it's crazy, it seems really absurd, but that is the human nature. We hide that better than they did. They were more vocal about it, but the truth is all of us struggle at some point in finding our significance, and we do that in ways that oftentimes it's all about us, and it's not about loving God or our fellow man. It's about how can we exalt ourselves and make ourselves the greatest. But John tells us something that also happens in this room during this uh, Passover celebration. He tells us the fact that Jesus did this outrageous act of humility. He washed the feet of his disciples. And we can't appreciate fully what that was like even though we know most of us do not want to touch people's feet, right? We know that. It's nasty. But they walked around in sandals. They had dirt and crud from the roads, the dusty roads. And there's no way that somebody of Jesus' status, more or less just a free person in that society, would have been kneeling down, washing the feet of their guests. That would have been for the most menial of slave or servant. Yet Jesus takes the initiative despite the disciples complaining and saying, Jesus, don't do this, to teach this powerful object a lesson about servant ministry, about being a servant, about a picture of what we should be in our lives as serving one another, and also a beautiful picture of the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus Christ. 
I don't know if you've ever watched somebody's feet before. Some churches honor this and, and do this on a regular basis. Many people have debated over the years what's a modern equivalent to washing the feet. And there's anything that we stoop and lower ourselves in humility to serve others is an example of that. Just some, I, I was thinking back through just some examples in my own life of some things that were probably unique in this way. And once I went to visit an elderly couple, and I asked, is there anything that we can do or I can do, uh, me and a few people who were with me, and the lady said, my husband has these really, really thick toenails. And, she's una- and she said, I'm unable to, to cut them. They're getting very, very long. And she asked me if I would cut his toenails for him. And, I, you know, there was a, a part of me, you know, that did not want to do that, for real. I mean, I mean, I'll be honest with you. But yet I lowered myself, stooped down, and cut his toenails for him. I think of another time when um, we were on a mission trip in Newark up to Ray Dash's area, and we were in the projects, and I've shared this before, but um, the, the guy who was in charge of the tournament we were working at came over and he said, would anybody from your group be willing to clean the porta potty And uh, I thought, I can't ask anybody else to do that if I'm not willing to do it, do it myself. And he said, I want to warn you, it's pretty nasty. And I took my bottle of bleach and my mask and went in there and went at it. And I, I think of uh, Joyce, you know, in Honduras, and, and I'm, I'm sure that's everyday common experiences for her to do things like that. For us as Americans, I think maybe we are a little bit on the pampered side, right? And stooping down to be humble and lower ourselves to do something of that nature requires a di- great deal of Holy Spirit fulfillment and, and just being walking in the Spirit. But that's what God has called us to do, be a servant. So think about your own life. Think about the people in your life who you can serve. Lots of opportunities maybe over these next days to serve. We're going to ask our K-group leaders and our deacons to mobilize to be sure that the elderly of our congregation and in our community are well taken care of during this time, who may not be able to go to the grocery stores and get the things that they need. So be alert, be aware of ways that you can serve instead of just turning in on yourself and just shutting yourself down and saying, you know, I'm, I'm not doing anything during this time other than just self-preservation. And look for opportunities safely and following guidelines where we can serve other people during this time. Jesus said in verse 18 then, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Can you imagine the shock of the disciples, how upsetting this would be that here, these guys who had tracked with Jesus for three years of ministry, they had been there for everything, yet Jesus says, one of you is going to turn on me. And maybe because of the reaction to Jesus stooping down and washing feet and how that was beyond you know belief that he would do that, and maybe it kind of Uh, hit something home to them maybe they're a little more prideful than they should be declaring themselves to you know who's going to be the greatest and Jesus sets them straight and says you know it's not about being great it's about lowering yourself and being your servant and so maybe at this moment they have a dose of humility and they begin to question themselves and their pride and maybe they thought you know maybe it is possible that I am the one to betray Jesus and turn on Jesus 
And this word sorrowful is distressed. I mean, they're very, very upset. And with the exception of Judas, I mean, these disciples wholeheartedly believed in Jesus. So I'm sure that it was, it was difficult to wrap their minds around this. But verse 20, Jesus clarifies. He says to them, it is the one, it is one of the 12 who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So more than likely, if you look at this chart of how the seating was probably set up during this time, it was probably uh, arranged, and they, were, they would be lying around this table. It would be in a U-shape, uh, lying around the table. And we know that John was more than likely right next to him on one side because he laid his head on Jesus' shoulder, on his, on his chest. And Judas, more than likely, was on the other side of Jesus. And Jesus clarifies it, and he says, it's one who is dipping bread with me in, in, the, in the cup. And so John tells us this time, Judas gets up and he bolts and he leaves the room. And verse 21, Jesus adds something I think is super important for us to note today. He says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Wrap your mind around that one for a second. He says, as it is written of him. So Jesus is referencing, referencing the prophecies from Isaiah where that the suffering servant is predicted. It's shown it's, it's going to happen. And what Jesus says long before tonight, it was determined by God what this was going to take place. This was foretold in Scripture. Judas was destined to be, to portray Jesus, to, to turn on Jesus. And this betrayal wasn't something Judas just came up with it on his own. These events were playing out exactly as God the Father had ordained them to play out from the beginning. And some people have a great deal of trouble with that. But let me say the other side of that, which is just as much true. The fact that God ordained Judas's betrayal of Jesus did not relieve Judas of the responsibility for this evil thing he did. So although God foreordained ahead of time for these events to take place, Judas still had complete responsibility in the decisions he made. So God's sovereign control comes together with the responsibility we humans have in the decisions that we make. So we can't blame God for our decisions. God you, you know, how, did I really have a choice in this matter? You mean, you, you made me do it, or, or you, you, this was going to happen regardless. Scripture never, ever allows us to get off the hook for the decisions we make. So we trust the sovereignty of God on one side, that he rules over all things for our good and his glory, the good of those who know him, who have trusted him. He rules over us for his glory, yet at the same time, we have responsibility in the decisions that we make and the choices that we make. And so it's pointed out very clearly here that Judas made this decision. God in his sovereignty did not coerce Judas to carry out this evil act. The sovereign God worked his will in and through the choices of Judas. And I like the way R.C. Sproul puts it. He says this, Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do, but God brought about Good, good out of the evil, redemption out of the treachery. God brought about what he wanted, but Judas did exactly what he wanted to do. I think it's a great reminder for us as we 
deal with this coronavirus and the repercussions of all this and how it affects us is that we understand that we, uh, that, that we have responsibility here. I mean, we do. We have responsibility. And, and as far as I know, nobody in our church congregation has coronavirus. I don't know anyone who's been uh, affected by somebody close to you who has died as a result of it. But at the same time, we want to take precautions. And I was thinking about this as we, as we talk about it. it. It's easy for me to, to look around and say, it hasn't affected me personally, so it's not that big a deal, right? And, and all of us can kind of fall into that camp at times. But I think about there have been people who have lost loved ones over this. There's people who have been affected um, in ways that they can never regain. And so we should be sensitive to it, but also we should be aware that it's an opportunity to help people who may not trust God or may blame God or may hold God responsible for it, how this all comes together and, 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 and why is there suffering in the world. And we know from the Genesis account of creation, that God declared all things good. And we also know that man's sin, and as a result of man's sin, death and destruction came upon the human race and upon all things around us. In fact, Romans 8 tells us all creation is groaning. We are groaning. Creation is groaning because this is not the way that it was intended to be. And so we, as we navigate through these times, it's great opportunities for us to be a witness. It's great opportunities to, for us to share. And, and I think it's best that we try to avoid the, the political side of this thing and deal with it from the God-centered angle that I'm going to exalt Christ and lift Christ up and make Christ known during this time because it's an opportunity for us. And so we trust God that he has a wise and good purpose for whatever happens in the world. We see that in Scripture, and that's why we, we go to Scripture because we see the truth that God is in control, he's good and he's wise, and the world, what the world is going through right now, God has a purpose for it. And I love, I came across this in my morning devotional twilight time. I always read Paul Tripp's New Morning Mercies, and on Friday morning, this is what Paul Tripp wrote, and I'm going to read more of this at the conclusion, but he said this. He said, you don't have to worry about whether your world is under control. God rules. You just have to learn to trust him when his rule isn't evident. You have to learn to trust him when his rule isn't evident. And so right now, because for most of us, it's not too out of control. I mean, I mean, some of you lost some serious money in the stock market at this point. Some of you, maybe your job's in jeopardy or you don't know where your income's going to come from or it's going to be drastically reduced over the next um, few weeks or months. There's definitely a lot of uncertainty for everyone. There's a lot of stress and anxiety. So far as we know it, most of us don't know anyone who's lost their life. But it could potentially come to something like that. But the truth is, as C.S. Lewis pointed out in one of his books where he talked about the living in a world where the atomic bomb existed. I don't know if anyone has read that book before. But he talked about how do you live knowing that the world you know, or your, your culture could be destroyed at any point. And I love the reassurance he gave in that. And if you get a chance, maybe just Google that and read the excerpts of that book. But you trust God. You know that God's in control, that he's in charge. And at the end of the day, your days are numbered. My days are numbered. They're in his hands. Yet we have full responsibility in the choices and the decisions we make. And God being God weaves this stuff together for his glory. 
and our good as Christians, Romans 8, 28. So what comfort we can take in that. But think about the disciples at this point. They're still arguing. They're still immature. They follow with Jesus, but they're still at this point where, you know, you know Jesus, what are you doing here in the world? Are, are, are you not going to save us from the Romans literally? Think about their reaction. Think about it for a second. Think about how they would have reacted when Jesus was arrested and crucified. We know that they responded in a way that really lacked faith, did we not? They probably said, God, where are you? Where are you in this? We thought Jesus was the Messiah. Where are you in all this, God? Yet God was working for their good and our good and for his glory. And so in bad things, we trust, we, we take precautions, we are responsible for our choices, but at the end of the day, we don't have to worry. We don't have to have fret and anxiety because we trust God. And then verse 22 through the end of the section, Jesus here takes the Passover and he changes it into a spiritual gospel experience for us. What, what an amazing thing that century later we still honor what Jesus set forth here. Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them saying, take, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank, and, and, and all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood. Try that again. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So he takes this Passover meal, and who would have the audacity to turn this and make it about them unless they were God's son? Some people, you know, some critics, some people who are even say, you know, they're religious scholars would say Jesus was a victim, Jesus didn't know what was happening, Jesus, you know, uh, he was not the Messiah, he wasn't raising again from the dead, but yet we see Jesus, who would do this? Who would take this tradition of Passover, this beloved tradition, and turn it about themselves unless they were God's son, the son of man, the son of God? And so instead of representing the lambs that were killed in Egypt, the bread and the cup would now signify the body and blood of himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sentence of the earth, the sins of all people who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so over the centuries, millions of lambs have been sacrificed as part of this annual Passover observance. And each of those sacrificed animals, they all symbolize the reality of the deliverance from God's wrath. That's what they were symbolizing back in the Old Testament, back in during the Exodus, God's wrath passing over. Now, Jesus takes this, and he turns it about himself. But the same truth is still evident there, that God passes over us when we put our faith and trust in his sacrifice, the Lamb of God. We're passed over. So God is for us. He's not against us. That's the, what, what we call the substitutionary atonement, that Jesus, being the perfect, flawless Lamb of God, he took our place on the cross. What we deserved, we deserved death. We deserved to be separated from God for eternity. But Jesus substituted himself in our place. And unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, which were just an atonement, a covering temporarily, which you had to do again and again and again, Jesus, as First John tells us, was a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. No more 
does a lamb have to be sacrificed? Jesus was the lamb that was sacrificed for us. And Luke tells us that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance of me. You know, for us, normally just remembering means just calling back to our minds. But even though we may not think about it, remembering oftentimes has much more significance to that. And to the Jewish person, it would really meant so much more than just a mental exercise. I mean, think about this for a second. Think about if your spouse or child or loved one was having a birthday and their birthday came and, and, and all you did was intellectually remember their birthday. You just make note, uh, Lee, today is your birthday. Well, thank you, Tiffany, for reminding me of that fact. I appreciate it. And, and you just go about your business, right? That's not the way it happens, is it? Hopefully not. Maybe, maybe under this time it is, right, with the stress of life. But, but we, we make a deal about it. We celebrate. We remember more than just make note, but we remember because of the significance that it has and the value that it has. And that's what Jesus has done with the Passover meal to turn it to the Lord's Supper. It's a call to recalibrate our lives where that we understand and remember and we, we grab hold and we remind ourselves of the truth that truly Jesus died in my place. My sins are canceled. They're forgiven forever. I don't have to think about those any longer because God has removed them completely. And not only did he remove my past, but he gave me the very righteousness of Christ. And God is not angry with his children. God loves his children with a love that can't be comprehended ended or even described that God loves us because of Jesus in his blood and that's what Jesus is getting at my body my blood sacrifice do this in remembrance of me and then he says in verse 25 truly I say to you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God how awesome is that right that Jesus says this will be his last Passover meal. This is going to be his last meal until the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to return. He's going to set up his earthly kingdom one day. He's going to rule and reign. And Revelation 21 tells us that sickness, disease, pain, and death are going to be wiped away. Amazing. Awesome. In fact, I want to read from Revelation 21 here as we close. It says in Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You don't find that hope in the media. You don't find that hope 
in magazines. You don't find that hope talking to the guy in the cubicle next to you. You find that hope in God's word and God's truth. And that's why at this time our worship has to be valuing God and what he says in his word. And we trust that. And this time can be a time of of incredible growth and confidence in God and his word. And we know that God is going to complete what he started in us. And he's using all situations and circumstances for our good and for his glory. I want to end with the devotion, the rest of the the devotion that I was reading that morning, or at least an excerpt from it. Paul Tripp, who wrote the devotion, he says this, Honestly facing your lack of sovereignty over your own life produces either anxiety or relief. Anxiety is God forgetting. It is the result of thinking that your life is on your shoulders, that it is your job to figure it all out and keep things in order. It's wearisome to think that your job in life is to work yourself into enough control over people, locations, and situations that you can rest assured that you will get what you think you need and accomplish what you think you need to accomplish. If you fall into this way of thinking, your life will be burdened with worry and your heart will be filled with dread. But there is a much better way. It is God remembering. It's God remembering. It rests in the relief that although it may not look like it, your life is under careful control of one who defines wisdom, power, and love. In all of these moments, when our life is out of your control, it is not out of his control. That's awesome, isn't it? That's amazing. And he says, we remember. And Jesus said, we honor the Lord's Supper again and again and again. Not out of routine, not of duty, not of this is a thing we tack on the end of our service because we're supposed to do it. But it's a time to recalibrate and remember who God is, what he did for us in Jesus. On the way out today, there will be laying on, on a table, there's these little packets where you can open them up and inside there's a, a little wafer and the juice is already prepackaged for you together. And here's what I'd like for you to do. Uh, parents, I'd like for you to take enough for your immediate family, for those who live in your household. And at 1230 today, you're going to get an email which has kind of a little script if you need it on doing the Lord's Supper together with your, your inside your home there, whether it's just you by yourself or with your, your family, if you're married or have kids in the home. And you take this time to read through the scriptures again. And you take this time to lead your family. And maybe you think, you know, we're all good. You know, everybody seems fine. Nobody seems really anxious. Well, it's uncertain. Anytime we break out of our routine, there's a level of anxiety there that happens within us. This is a time for us to recalibrate ourselves and our families back to God. And to remind ourselves again what God did for us in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Those at home... You don't have these little uh, convenient little packages today, but I would encourage you to get some bread um, out of the pantry. If you have grape juice, I would encourage you to grab that. If you don't, I think God will allow you to use something to replace it, use some water, and take your kids and practice, uh, observe the Lord's Supper, and talk among yourselves about what God did for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for... Jesus Christ in his sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. God, I pray that you will allow us each to 
truly take inventory, examine ourselves and see where the sin that is about self-forgetting has how self, the sin of self-forgetting has overwhelmed our life that we, we think too much about ourselves and we think about uh, what, what's in it for us, God, and, and allow us to just forget ourselves for a few moments and allow us to recalibrate our lives to you. And just little by little over time, we know that you will continue to work the sanctification process. You will continue to conform us to be more like you. And God, will begin to see less of ourselves and more of you and more of our neighbors and less of what's in it for me. God, I pray you'll allow this season of life to be a time of encouragement, whether we do it uh, through text or phone calls or emails or we do it in person. God, I pray that you'll allow this time to be a, a time of really using um, maybe this extra space, this, this freedom to make a difference in other people's lives and remind them of the truths of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.